Hi, I'm Derek McFadden, proud to be an author, a poet, and a lover of most things pop culture. I am also handicapped, born with a mild form of cerebral palsy. But please note, this podcast is not called Handicapped Writer. It is instead titled Writing While Handicapped, because that's what I do. Join me as we talk with folks in the book world. And this podcast looks at the world of literature from a perspective you haven't seen before. Welcome in to a brand new episode of Writing While Handicapped. I'm Derek McFadden. I am the author of What Death Taught Terrence and the new book, The Santa Claus Agreement. I'm here with author Meg Schaefer. Her book is The Wishing Game. And Meg, tell us what The Wishing Game is all about. So The Wishing Game is a book about books. So, you know, it's already it's already a writer's book and a reader's book um, just on the phone. Um, it was inspired by two things. Uh, Gene Wilder's book of film, and also a true story that I had heard on All Things Considered, an episode called Just South of the Unions about a young man who runs away from home to live with his uh, favorite author, uh, hoping to live with his favorite author. He was, I think, 16 years old, and he showed up on fantasy author Piers Anthony's doorstep, hoping to live with him. Uh, combination of those two stories, a young woman gets the chance to play a game for the only copy of uh, the new book in her favorite book series from when she was a child. She gets to play the game on the private island owned by the uh, the wealthy author who's been kind of a recluse for a few years. She really wants to win because she desperately needs money. Um, she's a uh, teacher's aide who wants to adopt one of her former students um, and she just doesn't have the money for it. So there's a lot at stake with it, but basically it's Willy Wonka folks. Yeah. Explain Clock Island. Clock Island is the fictional book series that the children's books are often set there. It's the island that our author, uh, Jack Masterson, lives on. He bought his own private island and sort of turned it into the real version of his of his books. And explain the clock element of Clock Island. The, the uh, In the books, the island is set up like a clock and there's sort of places on the island that that uh, are set at clock numbers um so our eccentric author has done this for his own his own island uh so there's the five o'clock beach and the southernmost six so if you walk around the island it's about i think i say in the book it's about uh 90 acres if you walk around this kind of semi-circular island you are kind of walking around a life-size human human walkable clock so all the points on the island are are at different clock points uh, so jack masterson he loves riddles do you love riddles they drive me crazy <laughs> As they drive most people crazy. Yeah. So I, I, I am always delighted and annoyed when I get the answer because it's usually, as Hugo says in the book, something infuriatingly obvious, but so obvious you miss it. So I do think they're fun and funny and, and I'm, I'm always impressed by people who are good at them. I am not one of those people, uh, but Me either. Uh, I enjoy a good Me one. Either. Yeah. Yeah, puzzle. It's funny because I can edit mysteries. I, can edit I can't write them. Yeah, yeah. I can. I can yeah. see that. I could absolutely edit a mystery better than I can write because I'm a mystery reader. Uh, yeah. But the skill set. Yeah. The skill set for creating and the skill set for improving uh, or critiquing are two very different skill sets. I'm just bad at dropping I'm the clues. I want to tell everybody, like, I mean, I guess ten pages in, this is the guy who did it. Don't look. Don't look. <laughs> you won't know for 300 pages, but definitely it's this guy. So it sounds like you're better at suspense than mystery. 
suspense and um, heartfelt stuff, which is why I love this book. It really felt heartfelt. I loved Christopher and Lucy. Oh, thank you. I love them too. I, I don't have kids of my own, so I was surprised while reading how much I was rooting for her to be able to start this family of hers. Yes. Uh, but they, yes. they both really stole my heart. I don't think readers realize how real your characters become to you sometimes when you're writing. Oh, they definitely don't realize that. <laughs> no. If they did, they would think we were nuttier than we already, they already yeah. think we are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they already assume we're talking to people yes, in our, in our don't thoughts. Exist. Exactly. <laughs> and how some of your characters are more real than people who are real. Like, to me, absolutely, that's how it is. So Hugo has a really interesting arc. Do you want to talk more about him? Yeah, Hugo's a, probably my favorite character in the book. He really stole my heart, too. Um, he is Jack's illustrator. And uh, so he's a famous illustrator for the most, in this fictional world, the most famous middle grade book series of all time, the best-selling middle grade book series of all time. So he's become sort of a book celebrity in his own right, as much as anyone involved in books ever becomes a celebrity. Right. Uh, he is right. Celebrity children's illustrator, but he's known in the industry and, and kids have his, his posters on the wall of his artwork. Um, but he's quite a bit younger than Jack. Uh, so he's sort of a surrogate son to Jack and uh, probably Jack's last close friend who sticks by him after Jack goes through a hard time and, and uh, becomes a recluse. So Hugo sort of babysits him for a few years. And, and he's your classic grumpy artist, uh, a bit cynical, a bit brokenhearted, pretty lonely. Uh, so it was really fun to give him his own character arc and his own, his own story in the book um, and give him his own happy ending because I think he deserved it, especially after uh, babysitting Jack for so long on this lonely island. Oh, I agree. I, th I think he definitely did. Did you love children's books as a kid? I feel that. Do you? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I, I started reading very young. I think I could read a little bit even before kindergarten. And then I know my first book I fell in love with was a book on the planets in the first grade. And then the first novel I remember sort of falling madly in love with was A Cricket in Times Square and Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. And a trumpet of the swan, especially trumpet of the swan in fourth grade. It was about fourth grade, age nine, when I started picking my own books to read and really getting obsessed with them. So Which I think I, Lucy and I had that in common. About the same age, we fell in love with reading. I started with the Banicula books. Oh, and, fun choice. And then went to Trolley to Yesterday. Did you ever read Trolley to Yesterday? No, I haven't. I'll have to look that one up. Oh, it's great. It's, it's yeah. And then that sounds I went, like a Jack book. That sounds like a Clock Island title, Trolley it, to Yesterday. It, it reminds me of, uh, of it. That's why I thought maybe you had read it. No, no. It was more, the Clock Island series was very loosely, vaguely inspired by the R.L. Stein's Goosebump books. Right, uh, I, read when I, I read those. Yeah, yeah. When I got my first job at a bookstore, it was at the height of the books, uh, Goosebumps craze. Uh, and I knew they came out about six times a year and, and kids would just flock to the bookstore and they'd fly off the shelves. And that was that was what I was picturing was, you know, Jack sells 400, 500 million copies of his books. But he's got, right. you know, six to eight coming out every year and every child in the country buys one. Yeah, and they're each tiny pocketbook type. Books. Yes, exactly. You can yeah. read them, read them in an hour. 
Yeah, I love I love those kind of books. And then when I got to be an adult and reading adult books, I'm like, these are actually kind of long. I know. <laughs> yeah, every now and then I, I reread a, a middle grade book in an evening. And, then, and I, you know, I remember getting nostalgic over the days when I could read one book as a kid in the summer, start it in the morning, finish it at lunch, start another one, finish another one by dinner. <laughs> I thought I was just a voracious reader. Like I can just read anything. You know, and then I realized, oh, a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> they are right. they are shorter, but also you ha- you were a voracious reader because even those short books are are challenges for for kids who haven't fallen in love with reading yet. So you yeah. can still be very proud of yourself. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, I grew up in a house with a writer and a reader, so if I wasn't reading, something was wrong. Yeah, yeah. What what like what do you think? Do you think that your love for it was more the book of Wonka or the movie? Definitely the movie. It's Gene yeah. Wilder yeah. that, yeah, that makes yeah, the story work. Because I don't think, I mean, there are there are Roald Dahl books I've read and, and loved, like Matilda. But Charlie and the Chocolate Factory wasn't one of them. All the stuff right. I love right. from that story is Gene Wilder and the script of the movie, which Roald Dahl actually hated. He was mm-hmm. he was furious about the film. He hated what they did to his story. And I think they improved upon it. So many of Gene Wilder's great moments and the lines are only in the movie and not in the book. So and that kind of wild eyed but good hearted uh, Wonka character that that Wilder created. That's Jack to me. But when you first meet him, you don't know if he might be like evil because Wonka? that's the, yeah, that's yes, yes, that's yeah. the way that Gene Wilder played him. Yes, I think which I love. The, I, th- I think he wanted the kids to be a little scared of him. Yes, uh, and, I, and and I as a kid I appreciate that. I think we I think I grew up at the right time to see all the movies. You know, we always, I, I think as kids, especially the, the, int- the reason why I started writing partly, you know, I love writing, but it's something you said earlier, you know, writers are not big writers celebrities not. or they weren't when we were kids. Uh, right. And then, and then JK Rowling happened. Uh, and so, but I, I, I wonder if writing works best for reclusive people or at least introverted people. What do you think about that? I'm a little biased because I am a pretty extreme introvert and it has worked for me. And and I think that Jack is naturally reclusive. He lives on a private Island. So I think Hugo even makes the joke about social, social butterflies do not buy private islands and live on them. He's more of an, an introverted moth is Hugo's joke. But, you know, I, I think a lot of the writers that seem like extroverts really aren't, they're just vocal on Twitter. Whereas, uh, in in person, they're much more extra, are much more introverted. Well, do you think but, that uh, has to do with they can create the world when they're writing it? And yes, they, ha- they have I, no control of right. the world when they're not. Yes, yeah, yeah, I think that's it. And uh, you know, Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. Um, Good for you. I was on you. it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I know you're you're creating your own sort of persona on there. You're creating a character of yourself on oh, there. Oh, Facebook. I mean, too. we all do. On yeah, yeah. Instagram, Facebook, all of it is is, you know, if you look at my Instagram, you'll get an impression of me that probably is not 100% accurate, simply because I don't share my whole life on it. Uh, yeah. So you you yeah. might see the the artfully stacked books with the beautiful houseplant on top, but you won't see the pile of dirty laundry just off camera. 
that well, I haven't been able to get to because I'm on deadlines. There's a reason that my Zoom image is blurred. Ah, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I yeah, get it. I, I I get it. Yeah. I, so I wanted to let you know that I bought both of, I bought both of my siblings your book for their birthdays. Their that birthdays are in June, and, and I just, because I loved reading as a kid, they did too, and they read all the same stuff that I did, like Narnia. Yes, uh, and, beloved book series to me. So, yeah, so I, and here's my question. Do you have a specific way you would read those? Because I've heard that you're supposed to read them a certain way, but then other people argue that you should read it another way. Yeah, the, there's two there's two or three possible chronologies for the Chronicles of Narnia. There is when they were released, which would put Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. Okay. Um, there's chronological order, and then there's publication order. And I do release order. I start with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I believe then it's either Silver Chair or Horse and His Boy, Magician's Nephew, and then Last Battle. So, I which mean, is publication order. Because you assume that's how C.S. Lewis wanted it read. Well, that, not really. I think he actually said he preferred Magician's Nephew first. I think he preferred really? Chronological really? after he wrote them. But I would say Put Your Best Foot Forward and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is of the seven is oh, the best. Of 100%. The like, that's the one I read yeah. first. Yes. And I think I, I don't trust authors, their opinions about their own books. <laughs> I, I I will listen to them. I will hear you out because you wrote it. And I think you should hear me out because I wrote the book. But that doesn't mean that my opinion or C.S. Lewis's opinion is the final arbiter. So what do you think of, you know, you put a book out and then critics tell you what you were trying to say with it. You know what I'm talking uh, about? Oh, I know. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because I'm a film student, too. So we have to do a lot of film criticism in my film program. And it it is quite funny to read what the screenwriters or the directors thought of their film uh, and then to read the the reactions to them, you know, 10, 20, 50 years later. You know, uh, I'm a big Hitchcock fan and I wrote an essay on North by Northwest and I would guarantee Ernest Lehman, the screenwriter, upon reading my essay on North by Northwest would go, huh, I didn't know I did that. <laughs> I didn't know I meant to do that. I didn't know that was my my master plan. Uh, so yeah, but but writers have a subconscious too, and we don't always know what our subconscious is doing while we're writing. And other people may pick up on that better. So sometimes, as a writer, it's very enlightening. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people yeah. understand my books even better than I do. And sometimes I go, really? That's what you got out of it? Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you're like, you gave me more credit than I deserved. And sometimes you're like, exactly. you need to not be a critic I, anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you do wonder. Uh, my, but that's, that is their right. When, it keeps us on our toes. When I was a kid, my dad had written a book and he wanted me to read it. So I, I read it. And one of the lines in it was about North by Northwest, which in his book, he said starred Jimmy Stewart. And I Oops. was like, oh, oh, dad. And he goes, what did I do? And I went, that's Cary Grant. And he went, are you sure? And I went, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, pretty sure. <laughs> pretty sure, dad. 
just, now, I, I'm, on my North by Northwest essay, one of the comments uh, where I posted it, uh, somebody said, why do you call it a heavily armed crop duster? It's It doesn't shoot at him. It's it's just a crop duster. And I didn't say anything to them. I just waited for all the commenters to reply and go, have you watched the movie recently? He is getting shot at by a crop duster. There's a machine gun on the crop duster. So there's this person reason he's ducking. They knew the movie. Yeah, there's... <laughs> Yes, and that there are bullets flying. But yes, so so you know, you take you take you you have to take the negative reviews with a grain of salt, uh, but that also means you have to take the positive reviews with a grain of salt because it's so it is so amorphous, it's so subjective. You know, I've read started a book on one day and couldn't get into it and then a week later I try it again and it clicks. Right. So, you know, sometimes right. you don't like a book cuz you were hungry that day or it just didn't speak to you and a year later it does. So, and you just can't take it personally. And then sometimes and this is just me, and then sometimes a book is the catcher in the rye and you go, "Why?" I have no idea. Well, I felt that way about Scarlet Letter. Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter in high school could not even get past the first chapter. But then I read it a couple of years ago as an adult and could not put it down. So I think I just needed to be an adult woman to really understand Hester Prynne. Um, so, you know, it's it was just the wrong book at the wrong age and the right book, you know, in my 40s. That book for me was The Great that Gatsby. Because my grandfather tried, yeah. So my grandfather tried to read it to me at twelve. Oops. And at twelve, you don't really understand what's going on there. Yeah, twelve is not the best age to introduce the concept of the death of the American dream. <laughs> I honestly don't think he knew he was introducing that. I think he just thought it's Fitzgerald. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't think he even loved it. I think we read like 50 pages and he was like, let's read Hardy Boys. Good choice, Grandpa. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was just the way we went. Uh, so who was the person who inspired or people who inspired you to read as a kid? Uh, inspired me to read as a kid? Yeah, or did they, or did you need inspiring? Did you just do it? I know my mother was big into books and reading to us. I think I would have found them anyway just for my personality, but but I have to give credit where credit is due cuz mm -hmm. there are not not all parents buy their kids books and not all oh. parents read to them at oh. night. Um, unfortunately, it's one of the best things you could do with your your kids. Uh, but my mom absolutely read to us every night, probably until we were in third or fourth grade. We were at least having reading time together. Um, and so I know my mom is part of that. But I had wonderful teachers. I went to great schools and had wonderful teachers that really prioritized reading and, and in-class reading time. And they picked good books for us to read in elementary school. I mean, looking back on the stuff that we read, it was challenging and it was powerful. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage to give Where the Red Fern Grows to 10-year-olds. Oh, you man. Because you, you know you're going to be scarring them for life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scarred for life. Oh. I still have cats instead of dogs because of that book. <laughs> the, the story cats you can keep the indoors. Story, the story about that book that I just cannot get over. Wilson Rawls wrote that thing, right? And yes. it was in the middle of the draft, and he just thought it sucked. 
So he threw it in the fire. Well, his wife had read it. And so she said, you need to rewrite that from memory. And he did. Good woman. You got you to gotta marry well. If you're going to get married as a writer, marry, marry well. Oh, <laughs> Choose your spouse wisely. 100%. Yes. So we were I mean, talking earlier. Stephen King owns like Stephen King's owes his entire career to Tabitha. <laughs> well, and so does Joe Hill, and so does Owen King. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, going back to what we were talking about, critics. I remember about a month ago. I got a one-star review on on my book, What Death Taught Terrence, which it, um, took me 12 years to write because, you know, that's your first book. Yes. And um, I got one star. The person said they had read 50% of it and then just, I guess, thrown it across the room or whatever. So I was, you know, heartbroken for about an hour. And then my sister called and she had, she was at a concert venue where there was a shooting and that put everything into uh that and that put everything in perspective you know when your sister calls and says she needed to know if they weren't being told anything she needed to know if they were okay and uh or if they should move or if they should not and so i was able to tell i was able to tell her that they were safe but that changed everything thinking about the critic and I just thought about my sister. Yeah, it's it's important to keep things in perspective as a writer because I do know writers who obsessively read their own reviews and take oh, yeah. them way too seriously and will oh, yeah. will will change what they're writing or how they write based on them when it's it's sort of like, you know, if you are an expert at southern cooking and somebody doesn't like southern cooking and they try your food. And they say, oh, this is, you know, too deep fried or whatever. And it turns out, you know, that they eat raw vegetarian all the time. And you completely change your, oh, yeah. your whole style of cooking just to please one person. Well, what about all the other people who love the way you cook? So, yeah, you, you can't you can't take it. You can't take it too seriously. And, you know, oh. one star reviews actually sell books. I have bought books based on one star reviews that have gotten me curious what what made this reader so mad? What upset them so much? I yeah, have like, to find how out. bad is this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, if you're only getting great reviews, it means that only people who are in your tiny little circle of thought or taste um, it, or it even means, friends or family means, are reading it. Yeah, it means your mom loves you. Yes, yes. Whereas <laughs> you you wanted the book to get out there so that total strangers who don't even know you're a real person are reading it. The first person who posted a review was my mother. And I told her not to tell, not to say that she was my mom. Te techni technically, she didn't, but the review ends, I love you, son. That's so hard to control. You can never keep oh, your mom under control. Oh, no. I mean, but, but you love them. You know, you love yes. mom. Yes. So, what do you think is next for you? Well, What's next? I'm actually, we, since we were talking about Narnia, um, yeah. my yeah. book that I'm just about to finish up the uh, the next draft on it, I've written it several times and now I'm finally getting close to a final draft, uh, is loosely inspired by The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, 
sort of really just the portal fantasies that I read as a kid. Sure. But like, like the wishing game is grown up Willy Wonka. It's a grown up. It's, it's a children's book for grownups. It has, it has a kid's plot with adult characters. Yes. This is a portal fantasy book. Yes. The kids went when they were kids and now they are adults and have to go back. And so an adult survivor, basically an adult survivor of a portal fantasy world type book. Goes back. Um, and and yeah, what it back. what it does to you when you are 30 years old and you remember at age 15, you were sucked into a fantasy world and lived there for a few months. What does that do to you? What does that do to your family? How does that change the trajectory of your life to have this, this brush with magic? And how do you face it differently as an adult? Uh, when when you were called to go back. So this is the wishing game is not fantasy. Um, it's it's just contemporary fiction that's very whimsical. But the new book is pure fantasy. So, oh, I love it. Um, yeah, love very much idea. inspired by by idea. Narnia. Yeah, thank you. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you online, how would they do that? I'm on most active on Instagram, and it's just uh, Meg underscore Schaefer. And that's how they can find me. And I will respond to uh, private messages there. If you need to know where to get a signed copy, if you, uh, you know, uh, want me to zoom in on your book club or something like that, that's the best way to contact me. But you can also email Meg at MegSchafer.com and I will get that email too. Nice. Uh, yeah, this book is perfect for book clubs, you guys. Uh, there's a lot to talk oh, yeah, about. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean... I think people will look at it and go, is, is this a children's book? It's not a children's book. It's based on people who read children's book as kids. Yes. And then now they're, and now they're adults with responsibilities. Yes. <laughs> but they still deserve to have that joyful, whimsical adventure that they dreamed of as children. You know, I just turned 41 and I thought to myself, you know, I still feel 15. I'm just you think I that until you're around 15 year olds and then you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm 41. I am definitely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then you, you see them with their energy and their talkativeness and you don't understand any of it. And you're like, what? No, I'm. Yep. Uh, I belong in the generation that loved Alf. Yes, absolutely. Oh, miss that guy. <laughs> oh, and Pee Wee Herman just died. I know that was just such a such a blow to Ugh. my childhood. Oh, I loved Pee Wee's Playhouse as a kid and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. We watched it all the time at slumber parties. So, do you know how he got basically his show got canceled for for reasons for adult reasons? Yes, yes. And I asked my parents, I'm like five. I said, what happened? Why is the playhouse not on? And my dad had to explain to me what had happened. And, oh, my, awkward. and my response was, oh, that's why they call him Pee-wee. <laughs> my parents died laughing. <laughs> my, my memory of that was his comeback when I believe it was he was laughing stock and all over the news. Oh yeah. And, but then he, I think it was the MTV movie awards or something like that. Yeah. When the show started, it was dark and he just came out on stage and walked up to the microphone and people were shocked that he (laughs) was there out in public dressed as Pee Wee. And he comes to the microphone and he says, heard any good jokes lately? (laughs) And everyone died and got, they were applauding and clapping his chutzpah. Um, and I, I just appreciated that so much that he, he was uh, not in hiding, that he came out and took ownership of the story. By you know, yeah. I, I, you know, I mean. Legend. I, I, you know, 
I mean, it, truly, truly. And uh, pretty sure I saw at least one of those Pee Wee movies in the theater. So, you know, I was, uh, I, was <laughs> I, I was definitely a fan. Yeah. All right. Writing While All Handicapped right. is a podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you so much for being here, Meg. I, I definitely appreciate it. The book is great. Glad to have you back when the next one comes out. Absolutely. Thank you, Derek. You Thank have a great week. Thank you so much. You too. Happy writing. You, you too. Keep on writing. Absolutely. You too. <laughs> Bye, everybody. A note on the sound. We are aware that there were some sound issues in this recording. It's a Zoom thing. It's not an us thing. We hope you enjoyed the interview nonetheless. Meg Schaefer's book, The Wishing Game, is wonderful. And goodbye, everybody.